so much transition is happening. Southeast Asia needs as many people to solve meaningful problems as possible. Not just chase the highest ROI problem, but chase sometimes the hardest problems to solve. That's essentially really my hope that for us, solving this kind of problem is really meaningful because it's an incredibly hard problem, but it's an incredibly meaningful problem because it's not just about serving profits, it's about serving the, the specific needs of the marginalized folks, the people on the fringes, the small, yeah. the underserved. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseaa.com. Say hello to Basket, transforming Indonesia's supply chains and redefining what's possible in commerce. Basket sees the untapped potential in over 200,000 distributors and wholesalers. This startup merges tradition with innovation, technology, and financial support. They are not looking to disrupt. They are here to collaborate. The results are modernized operations, streamlined supply chains, and a win-win for manufacturers and consumers alike. Learn more at www.basket.app. Hey, Wai Hong, so excited to have you on the show. You are an incredible founder, but also gamer that I got to know and wanted to kind of hear a little bit about your story. So please introduce yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. So yeah, hi, I'm Wai Hong. I'm the co-founder and chieftain of Storehub. Storehub is an omni-channel platform for over 16,000 stores across Southeast Asia, primarily in Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand. So we basically help a restaurant or retailer automate their processes, grow their business, operationalize everything. So yes, yeah, basically what I do. So how did you first get started as an entrepreneur? I think I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because it is basically what it is. So I'm originally Malaysian, but I spent most of my life, at least prior to start, outside of Malaysia. So I went to school in Singapore for four years. I was one of those ASEAN scholars also. I wasn't a very good one. I think the Singapore government it would have said that I was a non-model like scholar. Right? <laughs> Always bothered me out my class and failing exams. So after that, my mom sent me over to, to Australia. So I went to uni there, did an arts degree, probably played more, spent more time in the cyber cafe than in school itself. Also failed a couple of subjects on the way to getting my degree, but I got that and eventually graduated, albeit a bit late. And so that's when I started my first journey as an entrepreneur. I started an e-commerce business out of my uncle's garage, just basically selling all kinds of random stuff initially. So we were selling things Things like telescopes and binoculars and night vision equipment. And we built all these different sites. We SEO the shit out of everything. And we grew a business. And, you know, in an album, basically, I was able to take that business from basically nothing in the first year to, I think, about 300K of revenue in the first year to about $2 million of revenue in the second year. And became a $5 million business over four or five years. Seven. So it's like 2008, 2007. So this is like Life way lies. before. Yeah, I know, right? Like this is way before everyone thought building a business or starting a startup was cool. And it's just like selling stuff online for me was basically what we were doing. In the time. And so that was my first thing. I stumbled into that and did that for five years. Ended up leaving the business in 2011 or 12. I went to Shanghai to study Chinese because mm-hmm. I was your typical Malaysian banana. So I couldn't mm-hmm. speak Chinese, but I look very Chinese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to school uh, in Shanghai for six months, literally from scratch. I didn't speak 
more than 10 words of Chinese. I think the only thing I could say was, something like that. <laughs> Which means so, I don't know how to speak Chinese. Exactly. Well. <laughs> right? So I was able to, in six months, get from that to actually, I wouldn't say business conversational, but probably more like old school or grunt, like on the street conversational. So I could oh, hang yeah. out with the business guy, the businessman from who runs a factory and right. we go out, hang out, have a couple of drinks and I could have conversations there, no problem. Right, no, right. So, so not bad. I was probably the most hardworking student I've ever been in my whole life right. in that time in Shanghai. I yeah. went to school for four hours and I went home and yeah. did another four hours of study. That yeah. was basically a life-changing experience for me. It eventually led me to traveling a lot around China and that's how I discovered the idea for store. I met a lot of entrepreneurs, both mm. right at the top, but also grassroots entrepreneurs. So I met folks like uh, this guy called Brian Lee. He was one of Alibaba, one of Jack Ma's and men early days right. Alibaba. And he shared a lot about the Chinese transformation journey and where mm. technology, where Alibaba played a role in that very fascinating journey. And right. on the grassroots level as well, I met a lot of retail entrepreneurs. I met this guy, Mr. Guo. He was he was running a chain of laun- women's lingerie retail stores across China. Mm. And he had just implemented this new system. And he right. asked me, hey, Wai Hong, you're this young tech guy. You've done all this stuff before. Why don't you have a look at this thing? Well, I spent a lot of money on it. <laughs> and so I did. And I was like, oh crap, this dude paid like half a million RMB for a piece of shit system, right? I was like, oh my God. It's like, it's always Windows 95-ish looking. I used to say Windows 3.11, but then no one really understood what Windows 3.11 meant. But right. Windows 95-ish looking and it's just the UI was horrible. And I was like, oh wow, this is crazy. You spent so much money on this. And so reconciling the journey that I guess the macro level of Chinese, the Chinese right. tech and transformation journey. My own experience as an online retailer for the five years I was doing in Australia. And basically what I was seeing right on the ground here with these bricks and mortar folks and the kind of the technology that they were buying and how expensive it was and how clunky it was and really seeing is there a future for us to build a platform to bridge this gap to help these right. Uh, bricks and mortar folks transition right into the future and so that was the idea of Storehub it wasn't about the POS it wasn't about anything it was really this idea of what does it take for us to help transition these people be that stand in the gap for these guys trying to mm. figure out that the future of retail future of commerce in general and so that's kind of the idea for where Storehub came from and I met my co-founder at a start, startup Christmas party shortly after in Shanghai I shared with her glimpses of these ideas and mm. we started working out my uh, apartment in Shanghai a couple of weeks later and just started coding so you know, I would say I coded about maybe 30% of the first version on the app she might argue it's a little bit less but yeah we pushed it out and that's how we started I moved back to Malaysia started selling to a whole bunch of folks grew from nothing to about maybe about 100 stores in our first year or so got some seed funding 1000 stores got a series of funding couple thousand stores and here we are with over 16,000 stores across our key markets in Southeast Asia using the platform it's no longer just a POS we started out there it was just a simple iPad POS but now it's really a full-fledged ecosystem products everything from inventory management a mini kind of like Shopify e-commerce thing right. QR ordering in store loyalty the whole shebang yeah and what's interesting is that POS has been going through multiple ways of launch scale death and, <laughs> and I think it's kind of interesting because I was just sitting down with another VC and the VC was just like oh POS is this terrible POS is a POS so and then of course on the other side of the table there was like another founder who was actually start going to pitch his own POS company so that made a little bit of an awkward triangle and a conversation there <laughs> triangles <laughs> and then I turned to the person and I was like okay what do you think about POS as why is this time different? What's going on? So, so forth. So I guess before we dive into that, obviously POS is like to some extent the lifeblood of the company, right? It's like talking about taking the orders, taking cash, transaction, converting the service into revenue. So I guess what's the dream behind POS first before we talk about what has happened since then? Well, the first thing is there's no dream behind the POS. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the POS is a means to an end as opposed right. to an end in itself. I think yeah. when we, even from the beginning, I never started this out. You don't convince co founders by selling them on a dream that you're going to build a POS company. Let's put it this way. Yeah, right. Right. And fundamentally, the vision for Storehub was 
always about this core idea. Where is the future of commerce heading? At that time, there was this dichotomization right. of offline, online, and people were very hyped about mm. that stuff. Mm-hmm. And for me, if you imagine, what does a store need to kind of right. like bridge that gap? If you imagine a super advanced store, all robotics, right. super automated, full fledged loyalties platform that has integrated engagement with customers. And then you're on the other side of the spectrum, the guy who's using pen and paper to run the right. business. So right. who stands in the gap between these two types of businesses? Right. And for me, that was the vision for what StoreHub was. And starting with the POS was a good starting point because right. it's the basic block. You Everyone can relate to what it solves for and the value it creates. And it is, in the majority of cases, the core system, the operating system, if you must, the central point for all data collection, right. data going through it. And, and then from there, that's where you stack all the other things that help you go from pen and paper to digitizing your transactions to actually right. creating new experiences. So I think for us, that was always the vision. And when we think about what kind of company we're building, yes, we have the core POS core. But of course, the difference here is that a POS is actually a very high bar right. <laughs> for, a, for a first product, right? Like the, the whole idea of an MVP, you throw it mm. out of the window because if you don't have at least awesome product, MVAP, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a POS, you're not going to sell anything. Right. So I think that's really the idea is it's not about a POS at all. Right. That's really interesting because I think that's super true because we're talking about the digitization or the improvement of the small, medium enterprise, whether that's an F&B or whether that's a shop or services organization. So what's interesting is that I think so many people have built these companies and there's always that dream to become large. They have lots of, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? So I'm just curious how you think about it because it feels like Southeast Asia is full of POS solutions. Uh, there's multiple players in each country, in Singapore, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, now Philippines. And there's new players keep coming in as well. So what's going on here from your perspective as a veteran? Yeah, I would call ourselves like a first wave of cloud POS companies. I think since then mm-hmm. we've seen multiple waves. And so I can say that when we first started, it was very yeah. Southeast Asia as an ecosystem was very nascent, right? We're still very young, very new. And the truth is, like most of us, we draw inspiration from right. what we can see, what we can experience right. ourselves. Right. And so in many cases, some of these entrepreneurs you have met who have started POS companies, mm. they would have drawn inspiration from the Square, right? Of that time. And everyone was, I remember there was a time, pitch decks were all about, we are the Square of Southeast Asia, right? That was the pitch deck. 100%. Yeah, yeah, the mochas, the, I don't know if we ever went down that path, but there was a whole bunch of mo- companies that were doing that. And then, uh, you know, eventually Square died down as a bit of hype. And then now you have everyone pivoting because uh, Toast went public and uh, trading. Yes, Toast is very popular now. We are now the p- Toast of Southeast Asia. So I think there are waves of people that, of entrepreneurs that have basically looked at what's worked in West Side, basically come and say, okay, we are the X of Southeast Asia for whatever. Right. And I think that's one way, one example why people are so hot on this idea. The other example is also, I think, because you also notice this trend. A lot more F&B focused POSs than retail focused POSs. Right. And the very simple reason for that is that most of us eat. That's a stupid statement. All of us eat. And a whole bunch of us are foodies. Yeah, and yeah. so we often like to solve for problems that we can relate to. Often right. like to solve problems right. that we feel more intimately. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs do that. They see, oh, restaurant. Oh, yeah, got restaurant friend. Oh, you know, whatever. And it's, oh, wow, they are so painful. And then they naturally gravitate towards restaurants. Right. Interestingly for us, like when we started out, that was actually the case. A lot of businesses right. were very focused on restaurants. We were the opposite. We actually didn't want to do restaurants. We were like, right. we're retail focused. And then we ended up having a lot of restaurants coming to us just because there are not many good providers in the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we ended up getting a lot of cafes. So I think there's thousands of cafes using us and we're probably the largest provider for cafes in Malaysia at least. Right. And so I think if you think about the evolution, it's very much connected to these ideas of what they've seen as well as what mm. you can experience personally. Right. Of course, 
The other thing that we observe in the market that's probably really interesting, and I tell this to VCs all the time, one thing that most of these entrepreneurs don't realize, and the reason why you mentioned, right, they start, they die, they start, they die, very very common pattern, is a lot of these entrepreneurs are often tech entrepreneurs. They're often techies themselves or product folks. And they don't realize that when they start a company like this, it's fundamentally an operational company. They're not actually running a tech startup. (laughs) So I think that's the gap here, right? Most people build a product, they try to sell it, and then they realize, hey, crap, you know, I can't scale this. It's actually a really big pain to manage through this. I think a lot of people start out with this idea. I want to be the Apple for POS, all self-service. Right. Just let them, just give them the software and they'll do it themselves. Mm. Nonsense. People get sold on the idea of product-led growth. Oh, yeah, just let the product be, just focus on the product and the product will sell itself. Just put it in the market. Right. People just download and also nonsense, right? I, I think all these are interesting trends that we've observed over the years. And I think for me as an entrepreneur, I've been very honest and very real that this is not just a tech business. We're building something with an incredible amount of operational skill that we need to focus on. An incredible amount of focus around building a sales engine, a sales system, not just hiring salespeople or not just thinking about PLG or product-led growth. All of these things are the basic business we're building here. It's really just a lot of hard work Arguably for not a lot of ROI sometimes because the work yeah. in relation to the outcomes is, is a lot more work than most people expect. And, you know, you mentioned obviously that, you know, you had to build a sales engine, which is totally understandable for every startup to scale. But you also mentioned that operations is underappreciated by these founders. So what is this, uh, what are folks overlooking or underappreciating about operations required to make this happen? I actually think it's both. It's, so the sales engine as well is super, is underappreciated. Yeah. So most mm-hmm. most entrepreneurs would think of the sales engine as, okay, you hire good salespeople right. or hire good sales managers and they hire good salespeople and then they train people and then you, that's right. it, you've got a sales engine. But that's not the case at all. I mean, the way you should, we think about SME sales in particular has to be very different from the way we think traditionally about enterprise sales. Right. And so if you're building an enterprise sales organization, sure, what we've just described works, right? You hire good salespeople, proven track records, making decent dollars and you can pay them all of that to sustain right. an enterprise sales funnel. But for SME sales, the reality is that you would likely be dealing with a high turnover sales force simply because of the, the price range of what you're selling and so on and so forth. And so a huge thing that we did in the earlier days as well is to be very clear about this right. and to draw inspiration not from enterprise sales organizations, which a lot of VCs, by the way, tend to point you down towards, but rather from <laughs> MLM companies. So <laughs> I... I so my inspiration is this, right? Like, if you look at an MLM company, like, what's the difference about them? It's yeah. they are able to take any Tom, Dick, and Harry off the street, yeah. Uncle Joe, Cousin Harry, yeah. and turn them into sales monsters overnight. And that that's a thought that captivated me for as we were yeah. thinking through all these things. Right. You know, like, well, let's study that. How? And of yeah. course, you don't actually build a multi-level system, but you think through the training that they do, you think through the yeah. material that they give, you think about the tools that they give to empower those people. Right. And when you put all those t- together, that is probably where we find more success in rather than thinking in terms of hiring good salespeople, we need to think about how do we build a strong sales system. And so for me, that's the sales system difference, which a lot of entrepreneurs don't really get because it's not something they think about heavily, you know, especially in this space. Operationally, I mean, it's, that, it's the lie that, people, that we like to believe like, because the lie that we like to believe is we can build an Apple or the US ecosystem and people just do stuff themselves. Right. Because the alternative is right. painful. Like right. we don't want to think about what does it need, take to scale a system like this without hiring a whole bunch of people and sending them out all the time. Right Now, my, my answer to this is it's not about hiring a lot, whole bunch of people and sending them all the time. Yeah. But the challenge here is actually a lot in the details. Right. So when we think about the kind of systems or the kind of solutions that we're selling, it's almost like infrastructure solutions. Really. If the POS goes down, boom, then yeah. the business is just screwed. And so how do we think in terms of supporting that level of dependency right. with what we're building for them? So everything down to the routers that our customers are using, mm. the monitoring on that, the software we're building for that, the, the choice 
choice of routers brands. There's a whole bunch of businesses out there, POS mm. startups out there, they are still giving consumer-grade routers to their customers. Mm. And then they wonder why they keep having support problems. Why they, and you're like, dude, because yeah. you don't think about these things enough. If there's an important reliance on the network, then you have to make sure that there's dependencies. Yeah. Because if the network goes down, even if it's not your fault, Right. Guess who they blame first? Yeah. The POS company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it'd be quite unpopular if you say like, oh, the problem is your you know, router. Yeah. I mean, but you can say it. But the thing is yeah. that if you don't have a meaningful step for resolution, what is the poor guy that's still going to do? Uh, yeah. You know, so I think we've all gone down that path of blaming someone else. Yeah, but yeah. at the end of the day, blame doesn't, they'll still think it's you, right? So, yeah, you, yeah, so yeah. what is the step here? The step here is to actually own that or yeah, as much right. as you can of the data there and to actually offer meaningful solutions regardless right. of where is your fault or not your fault. <laughs> you solve it first, then you tell them it's their fault, right? Classic. It's kind of a funny thing. Right? You can't, even if someone else's fault, you have to solve their, their, their problem for them. That's yeah, essentially like, it. Uh, yeah, it's true, it's true. And I think what's interesting, of course, is that you're also building this in Malaysia as well. And I think, like you mentioned earlier, like a lot of folks are making assumptions about the US. They want to port a US model to Southeast Asia. So Apple, Square, now Toast. So what do you think are some of the dynamics of localizing or building this for Southeast Asia that you think folks underappreciate? I think the biggest one is definitely the idea that well at least the difference in the mindset of the SME business owner I think you have a lot more hands-on do-it-yourself business owners in the US right. in Australia where I was living for a long time very hands-on like I know business owners are doing their own accounting yeah. <laughs> like, you won't find many business owners <laughs> here doing their own accounting mm-hmm. and so obviously to be able to be very clear about those nuances and reflect that whether it's your sales process right. about what makes a business owner tick what yeah. value they perceive or whether it's in you know, you're trying to upsell value, right? Like sometimes we think, oh, integration with all these solutions. Wow, such a cool thing. Then right from the beginning, I remember I used to work with VCs because like, I mean, they're always very happy to give advice. <laughs> so they do. <laughs> and and they always say, oh yeah, you should integrate with all these accounting solutions. Da, da, da. I don't know. Inter- because we've seen this work elsewhere. But the truth is, business owners don't care. I mean, I don't do my, if, I know, if you're not doing your own accounting, who cares whether it's integrated or not integrated? The accountant is doing, is feeling the pain, right? Not you. Right. But you're the decision right. maker. And so I think there are very clear nuances for us that we've observed that what's works quote unquote there does yeah. not work here because the person experiencing the pain or perceiving the value is, is not the same person always mm, mm, mm. and how do you recommend founders dodge that mistake from your perspective how do I recommend yeah well. I don't know if I can recommend per se as much as I can probably share like how I perceive that myself yeah. but I think for me I was the business owner so I was right. the guy doing my own accounting I was right, the guy right. integrating all these solutions right and then I come back and I probably have made the mistake as well. I probably talk to business owners and say, oh, let's do this. Of course, zero QuickBooks. Let's yeah, work yeah, together. Yeah. Yeah. Then I start talking to business owners and like, these guys don't care. And then right. I, I think if you want to translate that to recommendation, it's like, like founders just have to be down and dirty with the details of actually what's the the life of a business owner is like what they what they how they think what they go through. There's really no simple solution here, but just you got to know that the, the the devil is always in the details. Yeah, you know? right. And you know, talking about this, I think a lot of folks are trying to build all these like vertical SaaS solutions for all these various business owners now. So I think you see people are trying to build an operating system, like you said, for F and B, right? So I think like you said, people trying to be Toast and so forth, like Atlas and so forth. And then you have other companies who are like trying to be OS for X business owner, right? HR officers or IT professionals and so forth. And I think you kind of shared 
to some extent, you've talked about how it was very important for you to provide that full suite, right? That one-stop shop dynamic for these business owners. So how do you think about that? Do you feel like you're a vertical SaaS or do you feel like, how does that work from your perspective? I'm not a fan of super niche vertical SaaS place. I think yeah. it's, I think the reality is that the market uh, is not big enough for those. Right. Not to say like the total population is not big enough, but the people who are able to appreciate the depth of those super, li- super niche vertical right solutions is not big enough. Right. I think I think you would find a lot of Singapore startups in that category because right. Singapore is a bubble, right? In Southeast Asia. Right. <laughs> Singapore business owners, Singaporeans, their exposure and their yeah. thinking and their mindset is not Southeast Asia at all. Right. And so I think the when you look at the Southeast Asian landscape as a whole, what you realize is that it is less about doing a lot in really like fancy ways or really advanced ways. It's more about doing the few in very simple and easily executable ways. So I think that is really why we chose to go down this path that essentially, right? Like, you know, do the few critical things that a business needs in ways that they can execute very simply rather than try to give them the Rolls Royce of that specific vertical. And, you know, as you, you know, you've obviously been thinking about this and obviously from a very strategic side as well. Does gaming help? <laughs> Since I'm just kind of curious. Does it like, you know, I mean, you know, it's like when I was a kid growing up, my mom was like, gaming is bad. It's rot your brain. Stop playing gaming. It doesn't help at all. And I'm like, no, this is a strategy game, right? It's helping me with my strategy. You gave me a personal life. You have that the mindset. But, when you think about this strategy, et cetera, do you feel like it, there's some overlap or do you think it's something else? How do you think about that? It's like complete overlap, right? I don't yeah. even I don't even know how to answer the question, does it help when it's like saying, is this so much a part of your psyche and your mindset already? It's impossible to separate my gaming experience from the way I yeah. see the world, the way I see the business and the way I grow it. So I, I think, yeah. you, you, let's put it this way, you can name a game in yeah. whatever history of right. games that we've had right. and I probably have played 70% of it, right? That's yeah. how extensive. I've played every Thing from your FPS, you know, in your CSGO, yeah. your Valorant or not, or your yeah. StarCraft, your, your whatever. And, and so in every genre of games, there is an element and a well, an element of it that is incredibly meaningful towards understanding and making decisions as an entrepreneur. I mean, if you think about the, the typical StarCraft mm-hmm. game, right? What is StarCraft? Right. StarCraft is all about timing, right? Timing right. is and knowing your power spikes, right? Knowing right. when are you strong against them right. and when are you weak and knowing yeah. when to expand and when not to expand. And right. it, even if I had taken out the original sentence Starcraft, you would have thought I would be talking about yeah. business here. Right. <laughs> and so when you think about those concepts, it's really quite interesting where we are able to take these things that we practice so heavily in, right. in games and allow that to influence our decision making or even just a natural thing, right? And so yeah, there's that aspect of things. There's also right. the aspect of how we, so I used to play a lot of Dota, still do, and I used to lead, uh, or at least was my, my, we used to lead my team to to play tournaments in Melbourne and we used yeah. to win a bunch of tournaments and and we would buy leadership books, you know, I'm not sure yeah. you, the back in the day was like John Maxwell, 21 Irrefutable <laughs> Laws of Leadership, you know, like really like old school shit. Wow. And we read this stuff and we're like, all right guys, there's a law of the lead, the law of the lead, the leader caps the whole team so we got to think about it. We got to tra- so we were teaching people, we were training the folks oh, in the team like, about, the, the, about leadership and, and communication, right? Because communication right, right. is everything in the team. Right, right. And so, again, like all these concepts within the context of a game, it makes so right. much sense. Even in the context of a company, it can even make more. So I think, yeah, whether it's learned skills or skills that I'm learning today and drawing inspiration from those and re-expressing them in the way that we organize ourselves as a company, I think that is very meaningful. Yeah. I love what you said about how there's a lot of like overlap and there's a lot of dynamics of sharing 
shared learning and excitement about the future, about how to improve on both sets. So kind of curious, how do you think about the game of startups or the game of business building? You know, what are some of the systems or analogies we can use? <laughs> the game of startup. I don't know. I mean, um, okay, I'll start with one first. Okay. I think the game of building a sustainable business is very different from building the game of a VC-backed startup because one is you're trying to build a company that's sustainable, is profitable versus one that is trying to achieve a $100 million of revenue within 10 years. That's a very different... It depends on which patch you're talking about, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm all, tell me about the patch, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, when the VC back game was just released in Southeast Asia, yeah. there was a particular matter to that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and of yeah, course, yeah. that matter changed in recent years. There was a big patch applied a couple of years ago, and uh, then yeah, there was yeah. another major patch that were that nerfed that <laughs> that <laughs> game style recently. The supply of minerals has dropped by fifty <laughs> percent. <laughs> well, arguably more. But arguably more. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think there is a. I mean, in a nutshell, yeah. what you first described was sustainable businesses yeah. is a game style and right. VC VEC startups is a changing yeah. matter. And who knows, right? Two years from now, three years from now, suddenly money is cheap again and yeah. bam, right? That matter yeah. changes. So I, th- I think there is, and the first thing obviously is that the difference is you got to understand the matter of the, yeah. the VC back game and you got to yeah. play to that matter. Yeah. My problem was probably that I think I was always just behind the matter because of mm. how unsexy like our business was mm. in the earlier years. Mm. In more recent years, of course, it, things have changed a lot. People suddenly love the matter of sustainable, meaningful growth. And the reason why, you know, I guess didn't capitalize on the earlier meta was I just didn't feel like that was a game I wanted to play. Right. I didn't feel like I wanted to raise a... Maybe it's because I I was running a bootstrap business in the past. And so something about burning a lot of money to to get a lot of non-paying users just didn't stick right with me. So I was always fighting with my VCs, right? They were always like, why why not not growing faster? I'm like, oh, but then you got to sacrifice this, sacrifice that. I said, never mind, you raise the next round. I'm like, oh, shit. So it was always that battle. And of course, you you come to a climate like today and suddenly you're like, hey, you talk to to, to VCs and hey, you haven't burned a lot of money for the attraction you've got. But that's not bad. That's really interesting. And so I think it's the, it's like how like certain games, right? Like I think Diablo, when the meta first came out, everyone was saying, Sorceress is the best. Barbarian was really crap at beta. But then when yeah. the, when it finally changes, you're like, oh, yeah. no, Bob is the best. Yeah. And so it, it's almost like if you're stubborn enough, yeah. your time will somewhat come. Yeah. Not always. Yeah. So a bit of luck has to have a play in it. Yeah. But if you're always chasing the meta, right. it's one way to play the game. Yeah, true. But it's not every... I would say for me personally, I, I don't know if that's my approach towards playing it. I don't necessarily need to... I don't have the ambition of being a unicorn or a billionaire or whatever. And right. therefore, I will play that game to get there. For me, right. it's like, no, I want to I want to have an expression of my approach. And right. if the meta adjusts for me, right. or if the meta fits me, or if my time comes and I'm prepared to capitalize on it, great. But I would not at all costs chase the meta yeah. for what it is. Right. Yeah. I think that's interesting that there are different, like they said, play styles, there are different strategies and also there are different like environmental factors, right? That's there. When you see founders starting out, right, in the game of entrepreneurship and building these companies, what do you think is stuff that they you know, underappreciate or they don't, that you feel like they have to learn very quickly? Underappreciate and learn very quickly probably different things. I think a lot of founders underappreciate the value of the execution part. I think I still yeah. see a lot of founders overstating the idea and the value right. of the idea. I mean, right. I meet people and say, don't want to tell me anything until I sign in and the A or I will. Yeah. Or I still meet people who say, I will only tell you if you say yes to working with me now. 
<laughs> like what? I think the other appreciation is is around the journey itself, right. where a lot of founders are outcome driven. They're like, right. they only really only see the outcome, and right. they don't ex- they don't realize that hey, no, actually, I mean, you, you think about it, right? As startup founders, if you really if your goal and your outcome is to make money or to have and that kind of outcome, don't be a founder. Right? Just go mm. maybe be an IB, do something else. Right. It's a more right. secure way to get there. Right. The founder is about the journey. Right. And I don't know if that's, that is appreciated enough. The journey is the most valuable thing about being a founder. Right. Things people have learned really quickly is people always say, oh, if you love your job, you never work a day of your life, kind of nonsense. Yeah, you very quickly learn that as a founder, you hate 95% of your work. <laughs> you will. <laughs> Why? Right. Because you're... You're trying to build a fast-growing company. You're right, trying right. to do things that are completely out of your comfort zone all the time. Right. You're putting yourself in a position where you will not be comfortable for a long time if you're ambitiously trying to grow the organization. I remember right. when I first started the company, my previous company when I left was about 30 people. So mm. when my com- when StoreHub became like 30 people within a, one or two years, I started feeling really like panicky. I was like, oh my right. God, I've never led a company more than this number of people before. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was finding, I was like, I, that's why I saw the business coach really early on as well. Yeah, yeah. But that concept of your, every six months or so, your scope changes, your yeah. comfort zone changes. You, right. you learn very quickly that if you want to feel good all the time or you want to feel like wake up oh every day is great it's wrong job (laughs) wrong career choice (laughs) yeah i always remember that someone was like oh wow congratulations on i won you won the award you know like your marketing person put it up i was like no it was me after the dinner being very exhausted in the award ceremony i put it up myself in my pajamas (laughs) and then i realized at 1 a.m and no one to celebrate it with either so i called my neighbor and said hey can i come by and celebrate a little bit but yeah totally get it i didn't get to do a lot so I think what's interesting is that obviously you've done a lot of reflection about strategy, your own personal play style and so forth. What do you think, you know, are your personal hopes and aspirations? What are you personally working on for yourself in terms of your leading and how you're building? Yeah. I had kind of lived the Malaysian dream when I was when I moved to Australia. So yeah. for context, the Malaysian dream, I'll put it in this way, it's the opposite of the American dream. So the American dream is you come to the you come to the United States of America, regardless of what whatever you look like, whatever what background you have, you can make it if you work hard enough, right? That yeah, is the American yeah. dream. Anyone yeah. can make it whenever whoever comes here. Right. A Malaysian dream is the opposite. A Malaysian dream is you gotta get a fuck out of Malaysia and then you gotta be a success somewhere else. And then yeah, yeah, that's you live the Malaysian dream. So that's basically what I, I grew up hearing as a narrative, right. you know? Right. So I kind of that dream when I moved to Australia, I got my PR. Right. I got my house, my car, my job, my career, everything there. But coming back here, triggered by all the political yeah. shifts that happened, the hope of a Malaysian being mm. able to bridge, stand in a gap. I think that one of the biggest advantages of my experience, me having lived in one, two, three, four, I think five different countries, extended right. periods of time, and, the, and being incredibly flexible and incredibly able to adapt. Right. And to take all of that and say, what does it mean to build world-class, strong, meaningful culture, meaningful companies in this part of the world. Right. And that was really a, a, an incredible hope that I brought with me when it came back to set up store. And we don't call ourselves a Malaysian company. My co-founder is not Malaysian. She's just Chinese guest. Yeah. We have lots of people across the region, the Philippines, Thailand, even right. Singapore. And so, But the idea here, what does it mean to take what we see are meaningful bits, behaviors, cultural traits that we can 
collectively pull together and say, this is what, this is the kind of organization we want to build. And this kind of impact we want to have in this part of the world in such a time as this, right? Where so much transition is happening. Southeast Asia needs as many people to solve meaningful problems as possible. Not just chase the most, the highest ROI problem, right. but chase sometimes the hardest problems to solve require the best people type of problems. So I think that's essentially really my hope, right? That for us, solving this kind of problem is really meaningful because it's an incredibly mm. hard problem, but it's an incredibly meaningful problem because mm. it's not just about serving profits, it's about serving the, the specific needs of the marginalized folks, the people on the fringes, the small, yeah. the underserved. And yeah, so I, I think for me, it's that I get to build something that leaves a lasting mark. A wise person once told me that, well, if you have a vision for the world that is like, that goes beyond your own life, that's a vision worth living for. And I, I was always flabbergasted by the thought of that. Can you actually formulate a vision that like, exceeds your life? Most of us only think about what we can experience in our own life right. and work for that vision. But yeah, when I think about the work that we do and the kind of life I want to lead, I'm always thinking in those terms like, what does it mean to have a vision that's 200 years from now, 300 right. years from now? Wow, that's so crazy. I think about it, it blows me away. So it's, yeah. <laughs> On that note, could you personally share about a time when you have been brave? Brave, it's a difficult word to navigate, you know what? I mean, you know, the cliche is that brave is not having that confidence in the midst of trauma. It's really, despite how crappy you feel, you still make decisions. And I think for me, probably the closest to that would be, let me think, I'm just trying to like take away all the sexy yeah. stories and go back to yeah. go to the truly challenging ones. So every single, I think we've probably lived through three times where we're like runways down to almost nothing as, a, as an organization. And we, and I think brave for me was pulling my co-founder together and say, hey, this is where we're at what do we do right. to, or what you want to do? And it's less about the things that we end up doing. Right. And I remember having this, I think, conversation just probably just like a couple of years ago. And it was more about the choice of, is this still worth doing? Because we could walk away from this and we could get really nice, cushy jobs. But is this still worth chasing? Is this whatever we, is it still worth doing? And we've done this for 10 years, right? Now. Right. And I think at the very least, two of these conversations, I would say those are probably the most, the bravest things we've done. It's right. having these really honest conversations with each other. And a lot of the time, I think if anything, it's my fear is what if she, when she goes, when she doesn't want to do this journey with me anymore. I mean, she's in a different state from me. But, but as, a, as a leader of the organization, you have to be most honest with the people closest to you and and be brave enough to walk them through that process, whatever right. outcome it is. Yeah, so that, I think that was probably the most challenging for me, the most challenging conversations for me and the things mm. that I need to be most brave about. For folks who are trying or thinking about having that conversation that you had with your co-founder, how would you recommend or advise them to structure or pull that conversation <laughs> together? I think the first thing that... The, before even talking about structure, the first thing not to do is to delay that conversation. Yeah. I think the worst thing is to always put put aside or put away or procrastinate on these kind of conversations. And really, I remember when I went to those conversations, the I didn't walk in with an outcome in mind, right? I think as founders, it's very easy to do that. Every conversation we go in, we want an outcome. We have an outcome. We're gunning for the outcome. But I feel like for conversations like this, if you go in there like that, you lose what's most important about conversations like this, which is let's honestly evaluate both of us where we're at in our view of the future of what we're doing and things that we're doing now and how much it's still important, how much it's still meaningful. Sometimes founders, especially CEO founders, go into everything and they're like, I'm trying to move you to this decision. And that's natural and that's habitual. I feel like right. for a co-founder conversation about where we're at, 
drop that probably. And right. in my case, anyways, it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Mm. But is that okay or not okay? For me, it's okay. I don't think we're we're meant to manipulate our way through life. I think it's right. more important that we walk mm. the journey as it as it allows us to. On that note, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate you sharing all of that and being so open with that. I'd like to summarize the three big takeaways. First of all, thank you for sharing about your accidental journey to becoming a founder where you built that business out of your uncle's garage and but then went on to build a POS system and I think a little bit about your learning journey as a founder uh, over that story. The second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about the POS industry. And I think it was a very deep dive, I think, about first generation, second wave, third wave. And I think some of the underappreciated parts, but also some of the mistakes that people have made, but also I think how you're trying to see it differently. I thought that was really good advice for folks who are either evaluating the space or thinking about a space or wanting to join a company in that space as well. So I thought it was really mm. interesting to hear that dynamic. And lastly, I think thanks for sharing. I think a little bit about your personal philosophy on life. I thought on one hand, of course, we had a gamer mindset. I think it was fun to joke and laugh a little bit about what the current state of play is, but also what the current meta is and play styles. But I also really appreciate it, especially you sharing the, towards the end about how some conversations don't need to have objectives or outcomes to be gunning for. And it's important to have that open conversation. I really appreciate you taking time to share. No worries. Thanks, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It was definitely a fun, fun time. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.